The First Tee with Robbie Greenfield and Zane Scotland. Brought to you by the DP World Tour. The Race to Dubai. Hello, greetings and welcome to episode one of The First Tee with the DP World Tour. Hosted by myself, Robbie Greenfield and the man who brings professional credibility to this new enterprise, former DP World Tour pro and now top-class coach-turned-pundit, Mr Zane Scotland. Coming up on our first show, we're chatting with your BMW PGA Championship winner and all-around great bloke, Ryan Fox. We'll hear from Ryan about what it's like to grow up with a Kiwi sporting legend as a dad, and he shares some great stories involving the late, great Shane Warne, plus a surreal moment from his first experience of playing the Masters earlier this year. It's Solheim Cup week, so we'll look ahead to that mouth-watering contest, and we'll also begin our Ryder Cup build-up as well. Without further ado then, I want to welcome my co-host and good friend onto this brand new podcast and into the conversation. It is the one and only Mr Zane Scotland and he's joined us live here in the studio in Dubai for episode one Zane. Flown in just for this <laughs> mate just 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 to see your face in person <laughs> oh, what an intro that that is yeah absolutely buzzing to get started with this show there's so much going on in the world of golf and we go out and play golf and you know chat golf and so forth and just to like actually make it a bit more official now. And we've got our partners, the DP World Tour, who have already produced the goods. A little bit more on that in just a second. But to give you an idea of what we're planning over the next couple of months, we're building up. We're going to be doing regular podcasts all the way through until the finale of the DP World Tour season. That's November 16th and 19th, I believe it is, at the DP World Tour Championship. And then, Zane, yes, we're not stopping there. We're going through into the new year as well. And of course, as we know, the Desert Swing returns to the Middle East. The DP World Tour returns to the Middle East with some brand new events on the schedule for 2024. But there's a bit of a backstory to this first episode of the podcast because the DP World Tour very kindly organised an interview, which we did last week, with Mr Ryan Fox. And you and I were watching the golf yesterday at Wentworth. I had half an eye on Ryan because he was a lovely guy, as you will hear in our interview with him in this show. And I thought, you know, he's in with a shout. He's teeing off three shots behind the lead. Who knows? This could get interesting. And it got very interesting, didn't it? It got very, very interesting. There was that, that, that small exchange of WhatsApp messages. And it was a bit like, oh, this could really change things. Like, and it was, he was out of the conversation for so long, you know, of having had a terrible third hole, a triple bogey, miles back. And then as it kind of like evolved, he made another birdie, another birdie, got past the, the slippery banana skin holes with pars. And then I'm getting a message from you like, he could do this. <laughs> if, if Till does this and then Till hit a bad tee shot it was like oh this is going to look really good this so um, what are the chances of that happening I think when this goes out I think our phones are going to be off the hook oh, you from think? DP World players asking to get on this show yeah come on this <laughs> podcast which is in its first episode and you will win on the DP World Tour that's our message to any player who might be weighing up maybe mulling over an invitation or maybe a request to come on the show because the DP World Tour have lined up quite a few very very special guests for us over the coming weeks Ryan was the first clearly we're a good luck charm and I thought we recorded an episode. We actually recorded our first episode on Friday of last week, Zane. <laughs> it was all in the bank. We were talking about you know, how he did well. He finished tied third in Ireland. Good, yeah. good start after a break in the summer. He came back onto the DP World Tour, dusted off the clubs. He finished tied third. He spoke about that. And it all seems a little bit incidental now. All it's the biggest win a, of his career. All he needed was a little chat with us. Just to, just <laughs> that was the edge. <laughs> just a little springboard. That's what tipped him over the edge, no doubt about it. No, of course, we can't take that much credit for Ryan's win. It was brilliant. Watching it, 
he's a really swashbuckling golfer, isn't he? And, and mm. talking about you know the quality of the leaderboard, that, that is honestly one of the best events I can remember outside of the majors in terms of a finish, in terms of a quality leaderboard. Rory, as he so often does, finishing strong, getting to 13 under, another top 10 for him. John Rahm fighting his way into the mix. Tommy Fleetwood being there or thereabouts. Ludwig Aberg, the new hot young property on the European Tour, on the DP World Tour, who's now, of course, just earned his Ryder Cup call-up from Luke Donald. He was leading by two shots going into the final round. Not the best day for him, but as you mentioned, Ryan making a triple bogey. Not many players recover from a triple bogey when they're in contention on a Sunday. Absolutely not. And as you just said then, and he has so many top players around him. You know, you, a, a really top player can, can recover from that when maybe the field's a bit weaker. But to be in amongst all those stars, all those stars playing well, and to recover, and from that point, just turn it on like he did, put that behind him, not drop any more shots, and get really get the show on the road was just... Testament to his mentality, his game is there. Like, I know if you got to watch that that last round or if you watch any DP World Golf and get to see Ryan Fox in person or on television, you know that he's a big guy. He hits the ball a long way. He's got an industrious kind of goal swing and move, not one that's been taught on a driving range. You know, very, you know, it's very much his own move, but he's able to propel the ball vast distances, which is impressive, which is really impressive. But the, the main thing is like, that fortitude for most people a triple bogey you know a bogey early on when you're trying to get into the mix kind of gets under your skin a little bit but you think okay a couple of birds i can make this back a double bogey you're starting to think mm, you can't really make double bogeys and win golf tournaments a triple bogey is like your day is dead it's gone it's out of it and to turn it around and then to win and not even have to go for a playoff was just absolutely brilliant he shot eight birdies following that triple bogey and no drop shots and he would Birdie the last in absolutely clutch circumstances with Ryan. He knew exactly what he needed to do. Aaron Rye was also in the mix. He had an eagle putt. In fact, it just grazed the hole. That would have gotten Aaron into a playoff had that dropped. But in terms of what Tyrrell Hatton had done ahead of Ryan Fox, Ryan knew what he had to do and he laid up on 18. We know how treacherous that hole can be. And he hit that 106-yard wedge shot to, what, eight feet? Absolutely clutch. Rolled the putt in. And the putter had been working all day. He just, you know, he was in the zone down the stretch. How impressive is eight birdies unanswered with no drop shots on that Wentworth West course, Zane? Very much so. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a tough golf course. That third hole where he did make the seven is arguably arguably one of the toughest holes, probably in the top two toughest holes, I would say. Um, 15, I think, for my money, is the hardest hole, which he actually went on to birdie in quite dramatic style. But... Yeah, to have that fortitude from that point to then go no bogeys, no more drop shots and really put together eight under for the last 15 holes when he absolutely had to was just brilliant. You know, just and the way that he then closed it out on the 18th, you know, he's the he's a power guy. If you ever watch him play golf, it's like a low fade. The 18th at, at Wentworth at the Burma Road course is a is a left to right dog leg. It's made for him. You know, it's a, it's a long hitter's dream. It's like squeezy fade down to the bottom of the hill and then hit high tower and long iron or mid iron for him onto the green didn't quite work out that way had to lay up lay up to a nice yardage the pins then tucked back left it all slopes toward the water so near the water he absolutely would have been playing for that eight ten feet right because anything pitching by the hole spins right to left and goes into the water he's put it pin high right where he wanted to be and then just coolly rolled it in and it was you know he'd he'd seen you know Tyrrell was done he knew he knew the score he had to get to Aaron Rye on the green lipped out that would have been a that would have sent his heart up and down, uh, you know, as, as that lipped out. Yeah, just watching that. 
and then to regather himself and roll it in. And you know what? It was quite. It's just quite nice watching him. Was he doesn't take his time. He just makes a decision and goes. There's no faffing around. And it was almost as I was kind of watching the television and I was kind of like you know checking some scores and see what was going on. And by the time Aaron Rye kind of marked his marked his ball. And then it got back to Ryan Fox. I kind of looked up and the ball was dropping in the hole. He just got over it, boom, done. It was almost as if it was like a normal Sunday afternoon with his pals, not on that stage with all those players around him with those massive crowds at Wentworth at the flagship event. Let's get into this conversation with Ryan because he's a bit of a throwback, isn't he? He's, as you say, doesn't waste any time, unconventional swing. And the best way I can describe him is he's, he's a proper ball striker. Mm. He's not a manufactured golfer. He's not, with the best of respects, you know, these, these young guys that have come through. I'd, I'd count Aberg and, and the Hoygaard twins in that bracket where they're very technical. They're very sound. They've got very strong technique, very authentic golf swings or very sort of technically correct golf mm. swings. Ryan's is not like that at yeah, all. They're much more orthodox. He's much more unorthodox. Um, but one thing that is orthodox is his ball striking. Like He's a fantastic ball striker. But there are so many pieces which you he you know you would absolutely not teach, but the outcome of how he pieces it all together is just like absolute magic. Whereas you say, as you say, like an Aberg, he kind of watches golf swing. He's a big, tall, powerful lad, but you know he's that's been a coached golf swing. You know, there's not many compensations in a golf swing, which kind of is a good golf swing. Is the least amount of compensations. Someone like an Adam Scott. Whereas a Ryan Fox says like numerous compensations that cancel each other out that just end up in 330-yard drives. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. It is amazing. He's, he's hard not to root for, it's got to be said. I, I want to get into our conversation with your BMW PGA Championship winner. We mentioned we caught up with him. We're re-recording this episode because of his win yesterday at Wentworth. And he was coming off the back of a solid week at the Horizon Irish Open. He finished for a tie for third there. And we're also in the midst of a Rugby World Cup. And that's relevant because Ryan's beloved New Zealand are trying to win the trophy for a fourth time and as many of you listening will be aware Ryan's dad Grant is the legendary All Blacks fly half who was an integral part of that 1987 triumph in the first ever Rugby World Cup so I started by asking Ryan what it was like to grow up with New Zealand sporting royalty as a dad. It sounds weird but it was just normal and I don't I I don't mean that in a bad way but I think when you grow up with it, you don't know anything different. And it was just dad was dad and he had people stop him in the streets and everything like that. And to be honest, I didn't really remember a lot of him playing. He retired when I was six. So I've got faint memories of a Lions tour, I think, in 1993 um, that I remember going to a game and watch that. But that's probably the only thing I really remember. And then... I think he moved into commentary not long after that and coaching. So I, rem- I kind of remember the commentary and the coaching side of it a bit more than his playing. But, um, you know, I played rugby and cricket all the way through. Dad dad coached me all the way through, I think, every every level of rugby he could, even as a first – he was sort of assistant first 15 coach at King's College when I was there. And um, also had my mum's dad played cricket for New Zealand. So I had that side of – I played a lot of cricket growing up, so I had that side of it as well. And, yeah, rugby and cricket were my two main sports growing up. And, um, you know, I was pretty lucky, I guess, genes-wise, that I was always going to have some hand-eye coordination in the family. And <laughs> I just ended up going down a different path. But, you know, both my granddad and dad played golf, and dad caddied for me all the way through amateur golf as well. So I kind of felt like I had I had a sports psychologist without really knowing I had a sports psychologist 
growing up. Um, I think there's a lot of similarities with goal kicking and and hitting a golf ball. You know, it's all a lot of routine based. Um, you know, that ball on a tee also doesn't move just like the golf ball, so you've got a bit too much time to think about it. And you know, Dad was known for known for being very good at that, obviously. So I think I learned a lot from him almost by osmosis um, growing up, and you know, always. Yeah, he was pretty mentally tough, and I think he instilled that in me growing up and when he caddied for me. And, yeah, it was it was a cool experience. And I think looking back on it, you know, I'm probably a lot more proud now or, you know, sort of when I understood it, a lot more proud than what I was growing up. It was kind of, oh, he's just dad. He used to play rugby. That's cool kind of thing. And, you, you know, when, now that, you you know, you're – you see what he accomplished in the game and everything like that. Yeah, I'm definitely proud of what he achieved and, you know, probably wish I could remember a little bit more from when I was a kid. Well, I think you were born the year he won the World Cup, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and and randomly my wife was born during the Rugby World Cup final. (laughs) Wow, wow. That is random. (laughs) That's crazy. Uh, It's amazing as well. With all the sport, the modern sport and records that have fallen over the, particularly in the last 20 years, amazing your dad's record of most points ever scored in a World Cup still stands to this day. And I I don't think it's going to get broken anytime soon either, the way rugby's gone. I didn't actually, I I didn't know that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, Still got the most points in a single World Cup. I can guarantee he didn't score a try in that either. <laughs> I don't think he did. So, Need to double check. And yeah, I mean, you, you know, you think, I mean, just looking at New Zealand fly halves from there, you know, Dan, Dan, I remember Dan Carter had a great World Cup in 15. Um, you know, that's pretty cool that that record still stood through something like that. For sure. And uh, you're right about rugby. I think Luke Donald's old mental coach actually came from the game of rugby. Goal kicking and and standing over a ball on a tee, very, very similar disciplines. Um, and I wonder, Ryan, how you feel about, given your somewhat unconventional route into the game, we see the modern golfer starts at an early age, of course. You know, you see them get started at five, six, seven. I suppose Tiger did a lot to change that mentality and that ethos about when kids get started in golf. Do you think your grounding in other sports, the fact you played other sports to an elite level, allowed you to have a maturity when you did turn pro at 25? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know where I stand with it. Obviously, the pathway I chose wasn't the normal pathway, but I do feel like I learned a lot from playing those other sports. And I know mentally I wouldn't have been ready to do it at 21, 22. But then you see you see guys like the Hoygaard twins, you know, who come out at 19 or 18 and have won, what, five, six times between them kind of thing. Um, And they've obviously been playing golf for a long time. So it's, I don't think there's a right way or a wrong way to do it. But, um, yeah, I do feel like at least growing up as a young kid, there's definitely an advantage to playing a lot of different sports. It develops a lot of other skills. And I think, the biggest thing I got from playing all the other sports was the team side of it. You know, I love the team side of sports. Um, you know, it can be it can be amazing. It can be brutal at the same time. You can have a great game individually and get smashed. And you can have a poor game individually and your team wins by heaps and you feel great about it. But that camaraderie, um, being able to share, share the experience with other people, you know, I really enjoyed that. And I'd certainly recommend that to, to anyone growing up, at least get involved in that team side of things you learn how to win as a team you learn how to lose as a team and you know i think those are great life skills to have in general not just to take into another sport 
When you did pro, turn pro, Ryan, and, and you had obviously your early years, you were playing obviously over in the, in the Australasian tour, coming up that way. Um, how did you kind of adapt? When you look back on it, do you feel like there was a moment in your career or a particular tournament? Or I know the sort of golfing journey is is never straightforward. It's it's never lineal. It zigzags all over the place. But have you pinpointed a moment where you felt, okay, I belong here. I, I've broken through. I'm I, I belong at the top level. Um, not necessarily. There's probably one tournament that made a, that made my career as it is. I it was the Aussie Mar the old Aussie Masters it was at Royal Melbourne. I think it was the week before the World Cup of Golf. Made a really strong field there. It was my second year as a pro, and I'd had a I'd had a terrible year playing tournaments. I played okay in some pro ams and made a bit of money at least, but not was looking like losing my card in Aussie at that point. Um, I'd missed the cut at the Aussie PGA, I think, the week before by miles, and I was kind of ready to give the game up. You know, and my old man came over and caddied for me at Royal Melbourne, and um remember him saying to me at the start of the week, why do you play golf? And I was like, well, it's supposed to be fun, but it's really not very fun at the moment. He goes, okay, well, let's go out and and have some fun this week and see what happens. And... Um, I made the cut and played a ride on the weekend. And I remember, I think I finished fifth and the four guys ahead of me were like, I'm going to get this wrong, but I think it was Adam Scott, Matt Kuchar, Vijay Singh and someone else. And I've walked off and gone, ah, okay, yeah, that was, I enjoyed that. And I, it was enough to keep my card that year for Aussie quite comfortably. Um, and then had a bit of time off and could sort of have refresh mentally a little bit more and came out and had my best ever year to that point and my third year out on the Aussie tour. And that sort of got me some starts in Europe and everything like that. And that was, I wouldn't say that was the week I felt like I belonged, but that was the week that, yeah, made or that could have made or broken my career. Basically, if that right. had gone on the other way, I'm, I'm not sure I'd be, I'd be sitting here right now talking to you. That's for sure. So it was kind of a mindset switch in many ways. Cause I guess, with golf being a, a sport that is so very, very difficult to to win at, you know, we know that 128 guys tee up, one of them's going to win, so you're going to have 127 that don't. So therefore, is it really more about setting your own objectives for the week beyond that and and kind of ensuring that you fulfill all of those kind of goals and accomplishments that you want as opposed to be fixating over results? Yeah, I... I think I've learned after a while that it's you just trying the easiest thing to do is try to beat the golf course because you can always judge yourself on how you play the golf course, not you know you turn up against a Rory or a John Rahm and they get hot. You could play your best golf you've ever played and probably still not win, but you could you can walk off and say, well, I I beat the golf course as good as I could this week, and I I, I did that a lot last year and felt like that was a really nice way to, to do it because as you said, you know, you, you're a hall of fame golfer. If you've won what eight times in two majors, basically in your career. And, you know, most of the guys in that have played 400, 500 PGA tour events, European tour events, everything else. It's not a great win ratio. And even tiger that, you know, arguably the, the greatest player, at least in this generation, his win percentage is what 20, 20 something percent. You compare that to the All Blacks. It's the All Blacks is, I think, at one point it hit ninety percent over yeah. over their whole history. 
it's yeah, golf's just a funny game in that regard, and it's you've got to find small wins in in other ways, whether it's sticking to a process all week, whether it's beating a golf course, whether it's having four rounds under par, or, or, or whatever it is, whatever. Yeah, I, I think it's so individual. It's it's very personal to everyone, to each person. But it's it, you've got to be able to find a little win somewhere else, or you'll do your head in pretty quickly in this game. Last year was a massive year for you, Ryan. I mean, winning twice on the DP World Tour in Ras Al Khaimah here in this part of the world, and and also the Alfred Dunhill links as well, and then. Getting to the DP World Tour Championship with a shout at challenging for the rankings title just behind Rory McIlroy. I mean, that must have been a, a heck of a year just to absorb all of that. What sort of stands out for you when you reflect on 2022 as, as, a, as a great memory or, you know, something you look back on really fondly? Yeah, I mean, I, I can look back on the whole year pretty fondly, to be honest. It exceeded expectations by a long way, especially, you know, 2021 was a bit of a tough year for me with you know, all the COVID stuff we dealt with in New Zealand and the travel restrictions and quarantines and all of that. And to come out in 2022 and win early and kind of take the pressure off in Ras Al um, that was that was huge. But, you know, the, probably the standout for the year was was winning the Dunhill Links. I mean, that was a tournament I, I watched growing up. Um, my partner for years there was the late, great Shane Warne. Um, I think I played five, five Dunhills with Shane and got to know him really well. And obviously it was a massive shock him passing away last year. And, um, you know, to, to, to go out there and, and to win that tournament kind of, you know, I, I felt like he was there with me trying to help out that, you know, I, there was a little bit in there that I really wanted to win it for warning. And, um, yeah, to be able to do that was, was pretty awesome. And I, you know, I, I wish he could have been there to experience it. Cause I know how much he loved that tournament and how much he, I mean, he loved golf. He loved competing. It, that would have been right up his alley. He would have been a, hat, a cat on a hot tin roof, just bouncing around all over the place, just loving every second of it. But yeah, that, I mean, that was certainly the the highlight of the year to do that. And that also sort of cemented my spot in the Masters for this year. And I feel the other big events, you know, in the scheme of my whole career, that's definitely probably the the biggest win, the the best week I've had on a golf course potentially. Yeah, of all the tributes that were paid to Shane, Ryan, uh, when he did pass so tragically, I remember one of them was, it really struck a chord because I think it was a writer, it might have been one of his former teammates actually, who said he basically played like he just strolled out of the pub and he was having a a, a laugh with his mates. And that's how he played cricket every single time he played cricket. And I guess if you want to like encapsulate that sort of joy of sport in a way, because it sort of weighs, the pressure weighs so many people down. Shane played with a freedom of expression that, you know, touched by genius, I guess few of us, obviously no one, very few of us get to, you know, experience that, but also to appreciate that he's a real one of a kind or was a one of a kind sportsman. Yeah. I mean, the last Dunhill we played together was 2021 and I've got a story exactly like that. He said, well, I'd played terrible as a pro just made the cut and we were, we were one of the last groups off, 10 on the on the Sunday and but we had a chance we were running sort of fifth or sixth in the team event he'd played pretty well and I remember I was like Warnie what'd you get up to last night and his raspy voice he goes oh we showed me a photo they're playing cricket in the old course hotel with a whiskey bottle and a tennis ball at 3am he's not had much sleep and he gets up and he, he 
he's obviously not expecting much because he's pretty hungover, but he's gone out and we combine well as a team, but he's gone absolutely crazy. I think he shot two under off 10 around the old course with, with three hours sleep and banging hangover and loved every second of it. And then we ended up, we ended up losing on countback, finished second as a team. And he absolutely crashed. As soon as we got off the ninth green, it all kind of hit him. But for, for 18 holes, you could see ex- he was in. He it, it was he was having a whole lot of fun, but you could see he was also he was in the zone a little bit. And it was probably as as close as he got to his cricketing days on the golf course, I think. And you know, we I, that was the last. I think that was the last time I played golf with him, and that's a memory I can look back on. And you know, I got to see what Warney would have been like a little bit out on the. Yeah, out on the cricket pitch, you know, fiercely competitive, but also could have a whole lot of fun with it. And yeah, he was, yeah, it's a good, it's a great memory to have. And he was a great man. And, you know, as you say, he's one of those guys that just, he seemed to be able to get out on the pitch and everything would, nothing would touch him, nothing would bother him. And he could just perform at the highest level almost day in, day out, which is very, very hard to do. That's an awesome experience to have. Uh, you must feel fortunate, I guess, because we're talking about one of the greatest sportsmen that ever lived. That's amazing, Ryan. i got to ask quickly about the Masters because I know it was your first one this year and I know everyone who goes to the Masters for the first time, I've never been, unfortunately, but everyone talks about the the undulations, <laughs> the landscape being so much more dramatic than it than you ever imagine it to be. But any other things that stick out as your first experience where you... You finished inside the top 30, I believe. You you didn't dis, uh, disgrace yourself. I think you were battling a bug at the time as well. Um, it ended up being pneumonia, actually. Pneumonia. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. Well, that was a very good performance then in that case. Um, but what stands out, aside from the illness, I suppose, from your, your memories of your first Masters? I mean, the Masters itself, it's hard to explain. I mean, my first experience of... Augusta was a few weeks earlier after the players and that almost to an extent stands out more because that you get to go see the place for the first time and I went on the Monday after the players championship and stayed on site that night hosted by a member and yeah you go in and we got to see every bit of the clubhouse every you know the media center all the way around the golf course all the little um cool things that you probably not see when you're playing the masters and you know, we went to dinner that night, had the Augusta fried chicken, which is apparently really famous, but I can I can recommend it. It was very good. Um, and in the clubhouse, I think, was Rory, Shane Lowry, Scotty Scheffler, and Tom Kim and myself. And you're like, this does this doesn't happen normally. It's it's the Monday after the Monday night after the players' championship and you know, the Masters champions here, there's Rory it was world number two or one or two at that point. You're kind of like, this place has got to be special for that to happen. And then you get out on the golf course, it's exactly what you said. I've been told so many times it's more undulating than you think. And even I got out on the first tee and gone, holy crap, this is there's, this is way hillier than I ever thought it was going to be. And then there's, you know, there's all the other cool traditions. When you play the Masters, obviously the par three comp's amazing. Um there's just lots of funny little rules they have. And you do like, you feel like you're stepping on eggshells to an extent, but it's also the history of it, everything else there. No feeling like, you know, every hole before you get there. There's just so much of that. I I had eight mates come up to watch it and they said, 
it's ruined live sport for them going forward. It's the best event they've ever been to and nothing will ever top it in terms of not just because I was playing, just the fan, the experience that they, that Augusta put on for, for them. Like the no phones thing was really strange, but they loved every second of it. You know, if you wanted a beer, you didn't have to walk very far to go and get a beer. Like they just did everything perfectly. And it's kind of that, that feel as a, as a player and probably the, the one thing I had, which which freaked me out the most, is we had we have a couple of New Zealand members there, and in one of my practice rounds, I played with one of them, and um, that was on the it was on the Wednesday morning after the players' championship. We had a fog delay, and he goes, "Oh, you've been around all the cabins." I said, "No, I haven't seen them. I've seen pretty much everything else." And he goes, "Oh, so he took us into Butler Cabin. We have a look around there. Obviously, that's where they do the presentation afterwards." And then we go into Eisenhower Cabin. He goes, "Oh, have a look on the wall over there." And I go up and it's this really old flag with a signature on it. I'm like, oh, uh, yeah, okay, cool. He goes, well, yeah, that's an original George Washington signed pennant. And you, you're like, it's just hanging on the wall in, in Eisenhower Cabin. It's completely open. You just can walk in there and have it, obviously, if you can get on site to start with. But you look at something like that and go, there's, I don't know if, other than a museum, there's nowhere else in the world where you could probably find anything like that. And it's just sitting on the wall as a decoration piece. And that kind of just explained Augusta to perfectly. It's just, it's just completely different than anything else I've ever been to. Right. I mean, you've totally sold it to me. I've got to get there as a spectator. (laughs) Yeah, it it is. It is unbelievable. (laughs) Some great memories there of the late, great Shane Warnzane and of playing in the first Masters. That's always got to be special. I always think, you know, these guys, when you're on the putting green as a kid, hitting shots and dreaming of majors and dreaming of winning majors, I would imagine every single player fulfills a boyhood dream when they get that invitation through the post to attend Augusta National and, and play in the Masters for the very first time. That's got to be very special. There's no trophy involved, but just to get that invite in the post. Yeah, as you said, just to get that invite in the post, because normally when you get post, it's a bill or something you don't want to open, <laughs> but that is exactly. something you'd be sitting by the door waiting for it and you would know exactly what it is as you're opening it. You know, I'm sure um, you know, we, we see on social media the guys, they post the, the nice uh, letterhead and so forth. And to get that and open it, even if you have played there before, it still must be a special feeling every year. And, and you know, as you know, myself as a golfer, yourself as a golfer, you get invited to something like that. Being able to, to call your dad or someone who's lived your golfing journey with you is like, it's such a massive moment, isn't it? You kind of, I think that the question is always, is it the Masters or the Open Championship? They seem to be the two people always gravitate towards as the, as the, the two kind of tournaments that you, as you alluded to there, on the putting green, like you know, when you're a kid, be like this to win the Masters, or it's this to win the Open Championship at St Andrews. Like, it just holds that esteem. It has that tradition. Has the all the magical pieces which go on even around the golf. Everyone talks about the you know, which we've been lucky now through social media to see the the, the drive up Magnolia and Drive of players who have played there for decades. And they're recording it and showing how special it is. And it's like, when you look at it, it's just it's a drive into a golf club. <laughs> yeah. But I guess that it's is... It's got so much mystique, it, hasn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a straight road. <laughs> but I guess that's one bit where we can kind of... Where golf is good from that respect because every golfer goes to... Uh, we don't get to go to Augusta. But when you go to the golf club in the morning, on a weekend where you've been working all week, it's that same feeling. And it's probably the one time when those top tour golfers get that same feeling as us now 
which is like, oh, yeah, I'm going to have a lovely day today. Yeah, yeah, that's it. You're absolutely right. And interesting, actually, just a final point on Ryan. His two biggest wins, the Alfred Dunhill links from last year and, of course, yesterday at the BMW PGA Championship, very emotionally charged. Last year, he, he told us in that interview, he was playing with the memory of, of his good mate Shane Warne very much beside him through that final round. And he spoke in his interview yesterday about the difficulties, the grief that the family had been through over the summer, losing his father-in-law uh, and have a, having a tough time and, and dealing with that. And of course, he's going through that at the moment. But it strikes me that, you know, he may be one of those guys who tends to sort of channel some some good positive energy out of those experiences. And when you are emotionally charged, it feels like that brings out his best golf in a weird kind of way. Yeah, so true. I mean, as as we all know, as everyone's people, people deal with things in different manners, and some people take them all hard and have to take time away, and and it really hits them in a in a negative in, in a negative way. Whereas it seems like if you can think, you know, all that's happened with him and having his family there, and as you said, being emotionally charged and going through a tough time all of a sudden maybe like make a triple bogey in the last round on the third hole maybe is that a moment where he goes you know what there's worse things going on in the world than me making triple bogey here like let's just get on with this you know there's you know he 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 obviously uses it to a to a, a, a in a positive way in a way that you know it's, it's happened a couple of times now where you know you, you, only he would be able to tell you at those moments do those th- thoughts come into his head but you can only think that that must be the case because to, to another player, a triple bogey would be the worst thing in the world and they'd absolutely crumble. I think some players seem to enjoy or thrive in playing for something other than themselves, like whether that's a memory, whether that's, um, you know, uh, accompanied by someone who's not with them anymore or, or, or you know, something, I'm not saying spiritually, but mm. if, if that makes sense, you know, some some players just tend to, tend to kind of really thrive in those conditions and some you know operate the other way they you know they do it for themselves I I think you know Tiger would have been a great example of someone who you know would be very much the first person to look in the mirror it was probably probably the only one time it seemed like Tiger was maybe playing for someone else was when he won the uh, open at Hoylake in 2006 where he broke down after because his dad had passed earlier that year and it was the first major that he'd won that he wasn't able to call his dad and that seemed maybe the only time but other than that as you say, he's a completely different animal to someone like a Ryan Fox in that manner. It seemed like he was just like a, a hardened wall where nothing got, nothing was able to penetrate that. And I think, I think the main message from it is that you, being aware of how you are, how you deal with it, and getting the most out of it is, you know, from one person to the next. As you say, some people need to cut emotion out completely. And then, but it seems like Ryan Fox is able to take his emotions. Cause he does seem, you know. Everyone you speak to on the tour says how much a great guy he is. If you, I mean, if you were to look from the outside, he's a burly character, hits the ball miles. You think, you know, he's a bit of a country boy. You're thinking, oh, he's, he'll be a real tough character. And then you hear him talk and you hear like, oh, he's, that, he's just a real down-to-earth guy who happens to be really, really good at golf. And he, you know, uh, and his interview yesterday, as soon as he came off, he was just looking for his, looking for his little girl, talking about his family, then was able to share that story with us. You know, it... What what we think is just a guy playing golf at Wentworth on a Sunday afternoon. In his world, it's so much. There's so much more going on, mm. and it, and, it, and having those having those people there. You know, we think it's about having a nice golf swing, like Ludwig Aberg being able to rip the ball high and straight and down the middle. But Tony Finau, he has he has like five kids. And he seems to win whenever his whole family are there. I mean, that could get quite <laughs> expensive <laughs> and sure. you know <laughs> you know quite stressful. But 
you know, there's different people who have built different ways. Ben, he, he's a family guy. He's down to earth, likable, hits the ball a long way. He can obviously win. Um, you know, and he's, I guess he's a bit more mature as well. You mm. know, he's he's probably gone through some knocks. He's gone through some low times and he's now able to put it in perspective, which is actually getting to do something really exciting that he loves. And he's actually really really good at it yeah listen a massive thank you to Ryan and to the DP World Tour for making that interview happen we really do appreciate that and of course if you are tuning in you are, you do play on the DP World Tour you know now that Zane and I are the guys to chat to <laughs> if, you fancy, <laughs> if you fancy winning on tour so massive congrats to Ryan just on the D, uh, BMW PGA Championship great week for Europe's Ryder Cup team all of them made the cut and six of them half of them Zane finished inside of the top ten Hatton Rahm Hovland Fleetwood McElroy and Aberg despite that final round 76 all finished in the top ten interested to get your thoughts quickly on Ludwig Aberg bit of a learning curve for him yesterday you know that's the first the biggest tournament he would have played in where he was taking the lead into the final round it was two shots clear there was a lot of buzz following his his wildcard selection by Luke Donald in that Ryder Cup team so he really is the talk of the tour at the moment and you know no real surprise that his golf faltered a little bit on the final day but I'm sure he'll have taken a lot from that I guess there's two ways you could approach this you could say, well, he's justifying the hype, absolutely, and he's justifying the selection. Or there have been people that have said maybe that final round might dent his confidence so soon ahead of Rome and the Ryder Cup. What's your reading into that? Yeah, I mean, it's a good a couple of good points, really. If you if you if you zoom out, you go, well, actually, he's come over. It's another top ten. He's carried on. He's good form. You know, he's been in another big tournament with big names, and he's been able to do the business and so forth. You think actually, yeah, this guy's a real deal. When you zoom in a little bit more, you maybe see you see, oh, he's not. Maybe I think it's just, it gives more pay to how good the stars are that we get to see week in week out that don't have that happen to them. You do see this from time to time where a new, uh, a newer younger player who's has all the talk, has all the hype, gets to the last round, maybe in the lead, and then maybe shoots like a mid to high seventies, and it's because it's different. It is just different every other round of the golf. You think it's the same golf course been playing for four days. Yes, there's more wind and so forth, but it's a different type of pressure. But he's got the game. And at some point, it only takes one. It only takes one de- half-decent Sunday in that position, and he will never, ever look back. Yeah. So, you know, it seems like he has like the mental fortitude to like, ride this off, and I think there's probably enough good going on around him to for it not to be hit too hard. And also, he hasn't got time to get down about it because he's got a, he's got a big couple of weeks coming up he preparing has. for a Ryder Cup. And the Ryder Cup, Cup it will, I think the team aspect will protect him and it will it will shield him from that very sort of intense pressure. We know the pressure of the Ryder Cup is massive, but the fact that the first couple of days he will go out with a partner, probably someone a lot more experienced in that team, I'm not sure how Luke Donald is going to be working those pairings, but you know you would expect Aberg to be paired with someone with some experience who can mm. really just kind of guide him and put an arm yeah. around the shoulder and I think he's going to do great a friend of mine was actually maybe save this for the uh, for more Ryder Cup chat but a friend of mine was on a on a flight to Rome uh, some of the Ryder Cup players were on last last Monday um, they went out there to do a recce and he actually got to sit next to Aberg on the plane and he said when he started chatting to him he, I think Aberg thought he was just you know just a golf fan he didn't really want to chat too much but when he he kind of explained that he was a race driver so he's a kind of a sports person he opened up a bit more and so forth uh, but also Justin Rose was on that plane uh, with him and he said and and Duncan Duncan Tappy is his name and he said there was a bit of a vibe of like Justin was kind of you know mentoring him a little bit and he was maybe set the task to 
can you look after this guy? Which kind of makes sense because Justin was once the guy who was the young upstart um, who we all expected massive things from, from, which he has actually ended up delivering those massive things, but yeah. nowhere near the journey we thought it was going to be. So you know, who better than someone like Justin For Rose sure. to, uh, to put his arm around him? And that's like, like you said there, that just caters straight into that team element. You know, he's going to be surrounded by that team. Had a bit of a, you know, he's had a, a bit of a negative experience on a Sunday, but he's going to have enough people there actually actually care about him for a long enough time. Normally, they'll be off to the next event and don't care. But in this instance, he's going to be in a team environment when they want to get the best out of him. And I think he'll, if there was ever a time to not have a great last round, I think it was probably now because early in his career and he's about to go into a, into a really nice situation where he's going to have amazing players who have all been there and done that give him some absolutely first class information that's it right full Ryder Cup preview coming in next week's episode really excited about cannot wait for the Ryder Cup I think it's going to be brilliant I don't even know where I'm, where my head is at in terms of who I think <laughs> might win Zane we're going to hopefully deliver the goods in next week's episode in terms of doing a full extensive preview of the Ryder Cup but there's another monster team event I want to chat briefly in fact look ahead to this week at Finca Cortesan in Spain because it is of course the sole Cup. Europe are going for three in a row. The fact is, though, the last two editions were incredibly close. The last two Ryder Cups have not been that close. The last two Solheim Cups have been on a knife edge. And when you look at the captains, Suzanne Pedersen and Stacey Lewis, I'm, I'm rubbing my hands with, with this one. I, I cannot wait for this Solheim Cup because it's two very young, very talented teams full of really informed players led by the likes of Lilia Vu, of course, the new world number one. You've got Nelly Corder on the US team. And then you've got recent major winner Céline Boutier, uh, the French lady on the, the, the European team. Charlie Hull, we know all about her. She went close at the, the British Women's Open. The, these two teams are stacked and they're very, very evenly matched. The bookmakers can't choose between the favourites. It's going to be an absolute humdinger. It's going to be absolutely fantastic, as you said there. And, you know, another name to add in there, Georgia Hall had an amazing start to the season, went it quiet in the middle of the season, but has it, found some form once again. She started, she's doing some work with Robert Rock and her goal swing. And I've been watching her at some of the tournaments this year, went to the Aramco at Centurion and then um, to the Women's Open at Walton Heath, which is just, just down the road from where I live. And what a goal swing she's got. On top of that, you know, I'm excited to watch Charlie Hull. I think the Charlie Hull story at the Women's Open was, I mean, it was great to see Lilia Vu, Vu win a second major this year. Great for her, and she's now world number one, and deservedly so. But I think Charlie Hull being there and being in the mix, there was such a buzz. Like I've not seen a buzz like that for a long, long time. It, and it felt like it felt like a bit of a Rory buzz when I was there, for instance. And I remember like kind of meshing some of the, my pals at, um, at Sky Sports who were working that week, and they, they were like, "We just so hope Charlie can win this because she just brings that great character, a great second place finish at the U.S. Open. You know." plays exciting golf you know is, is very open you know very like kind of raw and women's golf over the last two or three years you know ha I've been fortunate enough to get into it and cover it and it's just been it's been the stories that are coming out the talent that's coming out is it's got to be as good now as it's ever been you know talking to talking to Laura Davis and Trish Johnson who uh, who were the stars of women's golf when I first started playing golf a long time ago they probably won't want to hear um, <laughs> you know there was there was a good handful of good players and it was, it's always been good players but now there's just been so many it's you know, stacked isn't it it's, it's absolutely stacked and as you say like, a lot of young good young golfers now who are going to be at this Solheim Cup Leona Maguire you know kind of single handedly carried almost single handedly carried them to victory last time round another great story 
I think there's just so much good going on. Yeah, I mean, Lexi Thompson, who's 28 now. I remember, this is going to make me feel old, but she came out and played in Dubai. I think she was 17, 17 or 18. I remember watching her now at the time. She's 28. She's a bit of a veteran when you look at the ages of most of the other ladies on on both sides. Most of them are in their 20s. And uh, yeah, I think vibrant, very talented, two teams that are going to go and attack it. And what I've loved about the last couple of editions of the Solheim Cup, we've seen a bit of needle. We've seen a bit of controversy. And just like with the Ryder Cup, and you think back to those editions like War on the Shore in 91, the Battle of Brookline, it's those controversial Ryder Cups and those moments, whether it be the Justin Leonard stampede in the green against the Lathabal in 1999, you know, we've seen some some We'll never let that go, will we? We'll never let that go. We'll never let that go. I'm not going to let those shirts go or any any of the conduct (laughs) by the US players. I'm never going to do that. But, you know, some of those not non-given putts and controversial moments in recent Solheim Cups, it adds to that spiciness, doesn't it? And at the end of the day, it drives interest. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes it feels like, oh, this isn't golf. Golf shouldn't be this way. But it's kind of like, as you said, that's why these events are a bit better. And it it goes right back to, you know, like my... um, Sebi Balaceros and uh, Lazabel falling out with Paul Azinger, like back in the day over a golf ball change and this whole that whole drama and then more recently in the Solheim Cup we've had like the the putt that was like given but not given and then end up losing the hole over it and the captains getting called in and all sorts like at the time you're watching it thinking oh this is silly they should just all come together here and, and do the right <laughs> thing but on the other hand it's like actually this is what this is all about like they just want to win it's the one time because so much in golf is like you play well I play well hopefully I play a little bit better everyone have a nice time this is the one time where it's like I don't care it's a win at all costs and it's like we're kind of like we're allowed it for these weeks for these two weeks we're allowed to just put our normal our normal golf etiquette down just a tiny bit there's an edge and And an aggression to it that you just don't see in tournament golf do you you're allowed to clap a bad shot from your opponent (laughs) that's it (laughs) cannot wait for it I mean I'm assuming you are team Europe all the way all the way all the, All way. the way, of course. I am. So am I, obviously. Uh, I think they're going to get three. But in we a row. want to see it closer. We don't like. Uh, it will be close. We want it to be close. We don't want to see a, a runaway because it's kind of happened a little bit in the Ryder Cup. It's been a bit of a whitewash the last couple of either way. You know, uh, France and then in um, and then Whistling Straits. Whereas Solheim Cup has been really, really close. And of course, I want to see a really, really close contest. I just want Europe to win by one point. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see how it all unfolds. I mean, the US, they're taking a stacked team, a very talented team. You mentioned Lilia Vu, Nelly Korda, Alison Corpus as well. She's just 25. Uh, Rose Zhang is an up-and-coming superstar on the LPGA Tour as well. And I mentioned Lexi. We know about her. She's achieved so much in the game as well. It's going to be brilliant. That is this week, the Solheim Cup. Cannot wait for that. The following week is the Ryder Cup. And the first tee podcast with DP World Tour is up and running officially, Zane. Take two is in the bag. Thank you very much to Ryan Fox for ruining take one. But we're delighted for Ryan. And listen, cannot wait to get going with you and you know delve into the world of golf in incredible minutiae and incredible detail over the coming weeks as we build up to, well, first the DP World Tour Championship and then into the early part of next year and a brand new calendar for 2024. Yeah, I think we launched it. It's going to be launched at a very, very good time. Loads of exciting news to come up and Ryan Fox owes us one. He certainly does. So there you have it. In our next episode, we're going to preview the Ryder Cup in full. Please do subscribe. We'd love you to do that. And we're going to be back with our second episode next week. Until then, from both myself myself and Zane Scotland, happy golfing. Dubai Eye, 103.8. Join the conversation.